0: Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: So here we are again. Welcome back, my friends. We have been talking about the aggregates quite a bit. I didn't realize when I set out the intention to talk about the aggregates, the intention felt so innocent, but now it's like eight months later, I'm like, oh my God, I need a new topic. But we are finally at the end of the aggregates. We're talking about consciousness and it's the, at least for me, it's the, I think the shortest, or I have the least to say about, about consciousness, but it is important. Um, It's super important. Uh, So I'm going to talk just a little bit today about consciousness. Uh, I want to make some distinctions between kind of how, at least in the West, we talk about consciousness and how in Buddhist psycho-spiritual traditions, how the Buddha talks about consciousness because it is significantly different. There is some crossover, but I think we, I mean, I'm speaking for myself as someone who lives in North America uh that's west so consciousness has a certain connotation and when i stumbled upon the dharma so many years ago now it's it's taken me so many years to finally figure out like what the buddha was talking about when it comes to consciousness i mean you get the gist of it oftentimes we talk about consciousness in the dharma and we say it's the knowing factor and it is the knowing factor but For me, I think up until maybe even a couple years ago, I still had these like leftover questions that I never could seem to get answered. But now I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of some of those questions. So I'll just clarify how consciousness works as an aggregate uh, to tie all of this aggregate stuff together. So one of the things I've noticed is that in the West, we oftentimes talk about consciousness as states of consciousness. Right, higher states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness, both which can be fun. But states of consciousness kind of implies that consciousness is more of like a mood, right? Like anger can be a state of consciousness. Happiness is a state of consciousness. So in the West, sometimes we conflate a lot of the mental process into this umbrella that we call consciousness. So we talk about our self-reflectiveness as being part of consciousness, our creativity, our adaptability, all kinds of qualities of heart-mind are just sort of labeled consciousness. And, you know, oftentimes you'll, like maybe an article or something will show up and the question will be, what is consciousness? Or will uh, there'll be some discussion about the uniqueness of human consciousness. But when you look about what those discussions are about, it contains quite a bit of the cognitive function functions, a lot of the thinking parts, the feeling parts in the Dharma, we would call it the fabricating parts. So consciousness, I feel like in the Western canon is a little bit more broad where in the Dharma, it's pretty specific. Another thing we see in the West is that there (laughs) is oftentimes a question of whether or not consciousness is just a product of the brain. So again in the western canon we often look at consciousness either from a psychotherapeutic point of view or a biological point of view a metaphysical point of view oftentimes consciousness is called into question is maybe consciousness is just the soul and that's the the soul that we've been seeking or sometimes you know we talk about Consciousness being something metaphysical, something we can't understand that lies completely beyond materiality. You see that a lot more in philosophy than the science end of it, of course. But in the West, we sort of dance around this broad subject we call consciousness, where in the Dharma, consciousness has a pretty interesting description and framework. And so I'm going to clarify that now, how the Buddha really talks about this term consciousness. So, as I mentioned earlier, In general, if we want to look at the aggregate of consciousness, consciousness is defined as the knowing part of who we are, right? It is the part that knows or the process that knows what is so about what is happening. What's interesting in the Dharma is that consciousness is considered to be, what's the word, neutral. Consciousness is non-judgmental. It's not fabricating an interpretation of something. It's just awake and aware to what it makes contact with. So in the Dharma, there's this neutrality. Consciousness is not going to be defined as skillful or unskillful. It's just awareness of that which is arising. So it ties into this idea. I'll tie this in anyway. It ties into this idea of the seven factors of awakening, where the Buddha describes the seven factors. And he reminds us that of the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness is the only factor of awakening we, we can't have too much of. That mindfulness, we can have too little <laughs> mindfulness, uh, I'll admit, and but we don't have too much mindfulness, right? It can't get out of balance in that way. Where all of the other factors of awakening, we can have too much of. We can have too much investigation, too much energy, too much effort. Uh, we can have... Even the the positive factors, we can have too much of them. We can get clingy or attached to even tranquility or joy or rapture. So when we're looking at consciousness, we're really looking at a fairly neutral factor. It's something that's not interpreting, at least according to, to the Dharma. Sometimes this idea of consciousness, sometimes it's described as a mirror, that it's reflecting that which it holds. And sometimes it's referred to as being luminous, Sometimes it's uh, referred to as being radiant, like as it rests in its own nature. And that's because in and of itself, it's empty, right? Consciousness itself doesn't itself have an object. Now, that being said, the Buddha goes on to qualify consciousness by saying that there are actually six types. So as luminous and radiant and non-interpretive as consciousness is, the Buddha goes on to say there's six types of consciousness. So when he defines consciousness, unlike in the West, consciousness is defined in relationship to our sense doors, our sense gates, as the Buddha calls it. So in the Dharma, we would have six types of consciousness, not one type of consciousness. So for every sense door, there's a consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue body and mind consciousness mind consciousness is consciousness of the mental concomitants right the thoughts and images and those kind of things so in buddhism i have always found this to be really interesting and confusing that there's six (laughs) why can't there just be one six types of consciousness and they're directly tied to the sense doors and this is important and i'll explain this in a bit this is the most important part really is that there's types of consciousness where When we talk about it in the West, it's just consciousness, right? Where in the Dharma, it's not necessarily the same thing. So we've got six types of consciousness, and they're directly defined in terms of sense contact. Now, here's the clincher. (laughs) In the Dharma, consciousness is impermanent and based on conditions. This is one of the hardest things oftentimes for students to really get their minds around and I I put myself in this category consciousness is impermanent and based on conditions which for me for decades that made no sense because obviously consciousness is the backdrop upon which everything else arises and passing, passes away so it, it never made sense to me that consciousness is arising and passing away So I'll talk about this as well, but that's a huge important point in the Dharma is that consciousness is an aggregate, therefore it is impermanent, it's changing, it's not self, it's a form of suffering because we cling to it or identify with it, and it arises and passes away just like all of the other aggregates. When we say that consciousness is conditioned, this is what we mean in the Dharma. So let's talk about seeing which in Dharma terms would be called eye consciousness, right? (laughs) E-Y-E, no pun intended, eye consciousness. So instead of saying seeing, it's eye consciousness. So eye consciousness requires four conditions in the Dharma sense. One, it requires a sense door. So it requires a working eye organ. So the organ must be working and active in the moment. So that's a condition. And we must have a visible object, right? There must be this object that we are going to be seeing. There also must be the condition of light. Because even if the eye organ is working and there is an object, if there isn't enough light, eye consciousness does not arise. It has to also have enough light to make contact with the object and of course make contact with the sense door. And the last condition is attention we have to be noticing that we're seeing right so and this is this is a really subtle but interesting point that there is some attention to eye consciousness or consciousness in general think of it again as like hearing or ear consciousness so ear consciousness requires an ear right a sense door it requires an object or circumstance that is creating a vibration that we call sound. That vibration itself has to make contact, another condition, and we have to be aware of it happening. There has to be attention to the moment. So the attention part is really interesting because let's say someone's trying to get your attention. I'm totally, this is, I'm confessing my sins. I'm, I space out all the time and people have to be like, they have to say my name like multiple times because I will like totally fall into daydream land. And then I have to like come to, so imagine that you're spacing out, right? And someone is speaking and trying to get your attention. They're speaking. That's the vibration. Your ear is, is operating, but you're not attending, So ear consciousness does not arise. You don't hear. Hearing is not present, right? So from a Western perspective, we might say, well, hearing is there, but you're not noticing it. In the Dharma, we say, if there isn't that condition, it's not that you're not noticing it. It is not arising. Consciousness has not arisen. Ear consciousness has not arisen unless all of those conditions are ideal, so to speak, to have hearing take place. Now, obviously, as we're moving through our day, most of the t- time, so much sense input is coming in that consciousness is arising and passing away so frequently, right? Every single moment, consciousness is arising and passing away. And it is the that continuity, that frequency of sense contact that gives the illusion that it's always up that it's always arisen, that it's permanent, that it's just there as a backdrop. But what's actually happening is it's arising and passing rapidly, moment to moment, with the arising of contact at the sense doors. So it's a mutuality. It's a co-conditioning. The conditions arise, consciousness arises with those conditions. And that's a really, (laughs) it's kind of a wacky way of looking at consciousness. But if you think about your experience You can start to see what the Buddha is saying. We presume that there is a continuity. There is a sense of continuity, but that continuity is brought to you by rapidity, right? The rapidness of sense door contact, not by the fact that it's permanent, right? Same with the sense of self. We don't often have big gaps in our sense of self unless we're in an odd circumstance or we're meditating and we have a sense of not self. But the self is arising and passing away moment to moment. It's the rapidity. It's that rapid energy of sense contact and how fast the mind reacts that gives us the illusion of solidity. The same thing exists with consciousness, which is kind of harder to apply to because it just seems counter counterintuitive to speak of it in that way. Seeing is, I give you another example for seeing. You know the experience of like, you're driving in a car and let's say you're going to make a lane change and you look out a side mirror and you don't see anything and you start to make the lane change. And all of a sudden it seems like a car comes out of nowhere and is like, is there. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that. How did I just thought I looked? I didn't see it. So eye consciousness didn't arise. Like you looked, but the conditions weren't there for eye consciousness to capture and process the object. And so when we say to ourselves, uh, something comes out of nowhere, right? Like I remember, um, I have this crazy memory from like 20 years ago when I was in college and I was driving on campus and I, I went to leave the campus. And in my experience, a cyclist came out of nowhere and I had to slam on my brakes because I didn't see them, right? But It wasn't that the cyclist came out of nowhere. It was that I consciousness hadn't arisen and I consciousness came out of nowhere. I consciousness arose and then I caught the object, not the other way around. Awareness had not arisen. The consciousness, the the conditions were not perfectly there for I consciousness to arise. So that feeling we have sometimes where all of a sudden we notice something is consciousness arising that is that experience so that's where you can notice this in meditation and what you're really noticing is object and consciousness arising and making contact the simultaneous co-creation of sense contact with awareness and that's the easiest place to notice this is those moments where you're doing something and then all of a sudden something comes into the sense door but what's really happening is consciousness is arising in that moment Another example, when I meditate in my office in the morning, (laughs) I'll open up the window to get fresh air and inevitably like in the beginning, it's very quiet. And then there's a dog that lives next door that kind of wakes up usually mid meditation. But what I've noticed is that sometimes it seems like the dog has been barking for quite some time and then ear consciousness notices it and comes online and then barking. Right, Barking as an experience comes into consciousness. From a non-meditator perspective, we might presume that awareness was always there and then all of a sudden it caught the sound. But from a Buddhist perspective, that's not what's happening. Sound and consciousness are arising. They're both impermanent. They're both coming into being in the moment that you notice that the dog was in fact barking. So I know it's weird. It's, it's such a weird way of looking at it. And it's not intended to be a theory about something. Of course, this is something that we're going to be noticing in meditation. The more we look for moments of contact at the sense doors. This is why some of the meditative beginning meditative practices are sense door contact exercises to notice hearing arising seeing arising, because that's the foundation of the knowing moment is when sense contact meets the sense door and consciousness arises in a sense to greet it. The reason consciousness is an aggregate is for the reasons all of the other aggregates are aggregates, is that we tend to cling to awareness. We tend to identify with it. We tend to suffer from it. And Consciousness is the hardest aggregate to see because it feels permanent. It just feels like that's the backdrop of everything. So it is a form of suffering in that we cling to it and identify with it, right? That's where the suffering comes into being. Unlike some of the other aggregates, it's harder to see a desire to be conscious, right? But it's there. There is an intention to be conscious. So consciousness also arises and passes away with a sense of intentionality. And bringing this back to our other Dharma talks we've had in the last few weeks, consciousness is a fabrication. We're participating in it arising. So like the other aggregates, it's a fabrication. It's a participatory experience. It's not just arising randomly. It's arising based on the energy of intention, but it's really difficult to see. It's so subtle to separate consciousness from its object. Most of the time, it's it's so fused. Awareness and the object are so close together. You really have to have enough mindfulness and be looking for it to really see that there's a subtle difference between awareness and that which awareness is knowing because they arise simultaneously in this sense of, I am seeing, right? We don't see all of the other fabrications that are happening. We don't see the conditionality because it's just happening so quickly. So we mistake it for a self. We say, I am hearing a dog barking, but what actually happens, consciousness arises with the vibration at the ear and then a sense of I accompanies that moment. A sense of I does not proceed. It's not like there's an I that then hears the dog barking. I comes into being with consciousness and the vibration of the sound. It's all arising in one moment. It's a bit abstract, but it's a good place to start to understand how consciousness works as one of the aggregates. I think we may have talked about this last week but I'm going to reiterate it again. And then I'm going to talk about some of the misunderstandings of consciousness, which I think can be helpful. We have to remember that part of the model of the Dharma in relationship to suffering and happiness is that the aggregates, the clinging aggregates are a major cause of suffering. So keeping that in mind, the aggregates do not come with us into enlightenment because they are a cause of suffering So as long as the aggregates are arising and passing away, we are on this side, this side of enlightenment, right? At enlightenment, the aggregates, we've let go of all of the aggregates and they do not come with us into the experience of awakening. This is very interesting because we presume that consciousness comes with. It's it's just sensible to think that this awareness that I have will experience enlightenment, but actually what happens is we let go of this sense-based consciousness, and it's the letting go of that aggregate that allows us to actually have what we call the experience of stream entry. Awareness, as we know it, does not come in because consciousness is impermanent. It arises and passes away. It's a conditioned phenomenon. But there's this presumption because we're so attached to it and the clinging is so strong, we presume that the awareness is gonna, that awareness is going to come with. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I, that's a big abstraction, I know. But it's just something important to remember that when you're exploring consciousness as a meditative object, just know that it is something that we're attached to, that we're invited to let go of. But it's just really hard to let go of because it's really hard to see. So most of the time, we're working with all of the other aggregates until it becomes so refined that we can really start to see how we're clinging to a desire and a sense of pleasure that comes from being aware. There's a there's a pleasure that comes from awareness, right? From consciousness arising, and we like to be conscious. But we're not going to notice that in the beginning stages of practice. It takes a lot of practice to be able to start even imagining that awareness, that which knows, is also not self. I'm also not that? How is that possible? I mean, even as I'm saying it, I mean, I know it theoretically, but I don't totally believe it because I'm attached to it. I I haven't had the experience of letting go of awareness. For me, awareness is, it's my awareness. Who's awareness? whose awareness is it you know it has to be someone's awareness so it's just something to consider as you as we move into meditation practices to know that the aggregates do not come with we let go of all of them including consciousness i'll just speak a little bit about some of the uh some of the misunderstandings of consciousness and this kind of might help to to put in perspective when i'm saying about letting go sometimes Well, one thing is, is that we, like I said earlier, we experience awareness as a witnessing of the other aggregates, right? I am aware of my body. So in that feeling, that sense, there is this felt sense that I am aware of an object, which is body, or I am aware of the aggregate of feelings, or I am aware of the aggregate of perception. Because of that, Awareness, as I said earlier, feels like the backdrop, the ground of being. And sometimes when we teach the aggregates, we make the mistake of using metaphors that imply that consciousness is in fact, stable, permanent, and true self. And one of the metaphors that uh, I used to use and stopped using because I realized it was bad teaching is a lot of us will say, like awareness is like a movie screen and all of the other aggregates are projected on to the screen, right? So that implies that's true in subjective experience. And that might be helpful to understand the other aggregates. Yes, the other aggregates arise and pass away in awareness. That's true. (laughs) But here's the caveat. Awareness is a movie screen only if the movie screen is also arising and passing away moment to moment. The entire movie theater is arising and passing away moment to moment. And that's the hardest one to conceptualize is that that part of it is in fact also arising and passing away. So sometimes as a teacher, I know I mess up by trying to use metaphors for consciousness and then I rethink it and it's like, wow, that implies that consciousness is stable. Um, So it's hard to talk about consciousness without talking about it as a stable, permanent force that we experience. Another more explicit reason that we often think consciousness is the true self is that there are, in fact, Buddhist traditions and other spiritual traditions that do actually describe consciousness as the ground of being. So depending on which tradition you're coming from, there might be certain traditions that imply that consciousness is is kind of where you're headed that consciousness is the thing that's left behind and that if we clear out all the objects in the consciousness like if we clear out all the other aggregates that witnessing self is the divine backdrop that is the part that's left behind and uh, i've mentioned this before in other talks but man when i was hanging out with ruth dennison I feel, I'm sure she said a lot of other things to me, but like, and I don't know why she felt I needed to know this. I never thought of that before. Maybe she was trying to tell me something, but in hanging out with Ruth, man, she kept saying, Gregory, you are not the witnessing self. That awareness back there, that's not you. And I'd say, okay, Ruth, I got, yeah, okay. I'm not the witnessing self. And then she'd say, she's like, you're not the witnessing self. And I realized now that she was really trying to point out the fact that, I was saying, yes, I'm not that, but I didn't believe her. I was still, yeah, 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 I'm not the witnessing self, but it feels like I'm the witness. It feels like I'm the backdrop consciousness. So we call that backdrop consciousness the witnessing self. And there are mystical traditions and various forms of spiritual practices in which the goal is to identify just with the witness, the witnessing awareness, and to clear out all of the objects of to quiet the mind to such a degree that the objects leave, and it's just the luminosity of the empty mirror without an object. So the Buddha talks about that when you're in that state where awareness is clean, right? Clean of hindrances, clean of much of the fabrication, the experience is so subtle and so pleasurable because there's really no agitation that it's easy to mistake that for enlightenment. It's easy to mistake consciousness in that moment for enlightenment because of the bliss and the clarity of vision and i want to read you a quote Ah, here it is hold on i wonder this is from uh of course joseph goldstein's practical guide to awakening he uh he doesn't cite the quote here so i'm not sure where this is from most of the time I'll go, oh, I'm sure he cites it in the back. Usually I look it up for you all, but I did not do that today. So anyway, this is in the chapter on the aggregates, of course. And this is a this is a quote in the Pali Suttas of the Buddha scolding somebody for talking about consciousness being. Let's see, what does he say here? Give me a second. Let me reread it so I know what I'm talking about. Ah, to be basically permanent. So the Buddha is scolding someone. The Buddha starts by saying, what is this consciousness? And the student replies, venerable sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. And the Buddha responds, misguided man, (laughs) to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. So apparently, that was the Buddha's pet peeves. If you made that mistake, you were called misguided. <laughs> so anyway, point taken that the Buddha was very serious about the fact that consciousness, probably because like us, it just doesn't make sense, you know, that consciousness is is dependent and conditioned. So... It does seem like the Buddha is really saying that it's an aggregate and he's serious and we are all misguided if we don't agree. But that being said, consciousness, it the way we teach it and the way we experience it, it makes sense that it's this clinging, right? We cling to almost the belief. It just, it just looks obvious that awareness is the ground of being. When everything clears out, it just looks like that. The next part I wanted to just mention as far as something that kind of trips us up is that oftentimes even without knowing it we're looking in our practice for an essence right we're looking for this pure thing at the heart of it all and in our meditation there's so much agitation with the hindrances for so long in practice there's so much arising and passing away and chaos in the heart and mind that when we get to a moment where things feel purified, right? When things feel still and calm and beautiful, the heart's like, "Woohoo, I've made it." <laughs> you know, we're like, "I staked this land for me. It's mine. This is a great place to be." So that's another thing is that sometimes we're really looking for some essential landing pad, so to speak, for ourselves. And when we have moments where we get that in the meditation, it's easy to then attach ourselves to it and create another sense of identity, right? Where what we're really doing is just clinging to awareness at that point. We're clinging to the sense of being aware. The practices around consciousness are really important. And I wanted to just mention a couple of them because as I said, consciousness is so subtle and we're so overly identified with it because it's so subtle and it's happening so quickly that it's the hardest aggregate to see. So i want to give you a couple examples and... I think both of these might come from the Joseph Goldstein book. Oh yeah. I actually put his name here. Um, I'll tell you his little practice, which is hugely helpful. So the first one is just reminding us that it is continuous mindfulness and the concentration that arises from continued attention that allows us to see contact with consciousness arise in the present moment as it's happening. So we want to relax into consciousness as an object. We don't want to force it because we can't, for one. But second, we really need to be relaxed and at ease and have some real samadhi going in order to see object and consciousness co-create an experience. And the more concentrated the mind, meaning the more continuous the mind moment to moment, the easier it is to catch the mind in the act, the easier it is to notice sound, ear consciousness, right? Vision, eye consciousness, taste, tongue consciousness. We're able to see it the more we're just present with present moment stuff that's arising and passing away. So the natural progression in my experience of the aggregates is that just the more you're attentive to all of the aggregates and the more continuous your mindfulness and the more strong samadhi becomes, you'll just have moments where you're like, you have this, it starts as like an intuitive sense of like, oh, wow, consciousness and the object just arose. I felt, you feel it. You can feel the arising of the consciousness. So patience and ardency around continuous mindfulness is really important for practice. Just remembering that you're trying, <laughs> I think uh, Gowinkaji, in regards to this said, you're like a, a cat that's just spending the entire day outside of a little mouse hole waiting for the mouse to come and the mouse never comes but you're just sitting there ready to pounce because you and you stay there all day because you don't want to leave because at some point the mouse is going to come out. That's consciousness, right? We bring awareness to the present moment and we just keep coming back, coming back, coming back and then bam, a moment happens where sound and sight, taste or smell or body sensation arises and we catch it. And we just catch it in awareness. That's really how the practice works when it comes to this aggregate. That being said, Joseph has this great description of a practice that I like to use. And it's really fun. And I find it to be really helpful. He talks about how the labeling of experience, which we know is perception, the other aggregate. The labeling of experience happens in such a way that it reinforces the illusion that I am hearing a sound. The phrase, I am hearing that sound, right? Reinforces the I, it, re- it it frames the whole experience as a subject, object, and I making, my making. So even when we talk to each other, if I say, oh, did you hear that dog barking in the distance? It implies that there is an I over here that heard it, then the you have you over there and you have heard it. So the way we label perception really, Changes the way we experience the present moment. So he has this great suggestion, which is, instead of saying, I'm hearing this, we say, a sound is being known. A sound is being known. Not by you. It's just being known. A sound is being known. A thought is being known. A sight is being known. And he encourages us to look at how we use verbal fabrication, how we talk to ourselves about our experience of sense contact and really find ways of changing how we talk to ourselves to depersonalize the experience. And when you say a sound is known, it takes you immediately out of the loop. You're not there. It's the knowing and the sounding, right? It's like, boom, sound and knowing, right? Taste is being known. Taste is being known. Next time, (laughs) Ruth had us do it when we were eating. So we'd eat and it was this kind of chant where you want to watch the sense of satisfaction and flavor arise in the mouth with awareness. And you want to look for the very moment that the food is actually tasted, that contact. And taste is being known, right? Or when you hear a sound. So again, if you're practicing mindfulness kind of throughout your day, you're more likely to be ready to pounce on that moment and catch it, catch the mind in the act as something is being known, not by the eye but by consciousness itself. And so, I find that to be a great practice. I enjoy doing it with uh, with thinking, especially when I'm thinking, <laughs> especially when I'm thinking thoughts that really suck. Like when I'm having really negative thoughts about myself, I can be ah oh, a thought is being known a thought is being known and then it just kind of like it stings a little less cuz it's not even my thought it's just being known in the abstract and i find that it really helps to protect myself from self-deprecation so try it sometime watch what happens it's it's a really great practice all right bringing this all together we're being mindful of the aggregates because clinging to them causes suffering we're also being aware of the ab- aggregates to gain the wisdom of impermanence, suffering, and not self. We use the perception of impermanence, not self, and suffering to gain wisdom from the experience of the body, the feelings, the the process of putting this all together, our perceptions and consciousness itself. So it's important to remember that as complicated and sometimes as abstract as the aggregates are, it's all about practice. They're just objects of meditation and we use them in direct correlation with the wisdom of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. They're not separate. We really want to use them and look for the impermanence, look for the selfing, look for the clinging, because we want to let go of the clinging aggregates. That's the process. And the more we practice with them, the less the theory about it seems complicated and kind of confusing. It becomes less and less confusing the more you just intentionally work with the aggregates. Consciously as objects in your practice. And over time, what we begin to see, as I mentioned a while back now, when I started talking about the aggregates, is that we begin to see that moment to moment experience is aggregated. It's impermanent. It's changing. It's arising, passing, arising, passing. And there's just no solidity there. There's just no eye to hang your hat. And it is true that. Working with the first four aggregates is a helpful place to start. And as you become more familiar with those aggregates, you can then start looking for consciousness, looking for that aggregate, because that's going to be difficult to do in the beginning. But in the end, it's interesting. I asked when Tanisha Obiku came a few years back to Portland, I had asked him about the consciousness aggregate. And I... <laughs> Uh, he kind of poked fun at me, which was great. But like, I asked him, I said, I can't see it. I can't, I can't see consciousness. Like, I don't know how to see it. And I said, you know, I've listened to your teachings and I hear all these other teachers teaching and they keep saying, you know, bring consciousness like into awareness. And it's like, I can't see it though. Where? And I, and I asked him, I said, Oh, can you tell me what the action is? What is the action that is the noticing of consciousness. I was basically saying, could you be more specific and stop being so vague? I was like, I don't know what you're asking me to do in looking at consciousness. And one, he said, it's hard to see, just be patient and that's fine. And then he said, ultimately, consciousness is the last aggregate that we're going to let go of anyway. That upon stream entry, you will have to let go of all of the other aggregates before you can actually fully let go of consciousness anyway. So he was basically saying, don't worry about it, look for it. But at the end, he, so he was basically saying, you have a long way to go, don't stress about it, be patient. But then I asked him this question, I said, <laughs> I said, if awareness doesn't come with us into enlightenment, are we aware that we're awakened? Like, okay, so are we aware that enlightenment is happening? And he said, of course you are. That's why it's called awakening. He said, of course you are awake for enlightenment because that's why it's called awakening. And he laughed. So I was like, okay. And I, then I said, but how do you know? And he said, all you need to know is it's not about sense door contact. There is another way of knowing That we cannot describe on this side and it's not the consciousness that we're familiar with (laughs) And, and don't worry about it when you get there you'll figure it out the other thing he said which i thought was really interesting about consciousness was i i said so i let go of consciousness at the very end and then okay stream entry and he said no the letting go is the moment you don't let go and then it happens the moment you realize that you're clinging, fully clinging to awareness, as soon as you realize that the depth of the clinging, the letting go of the clinging triggers that, that moment. So it's not like you let go of it and wait around. And he was just saying, no, the, the letting go is the moment and that you can't let it go until the very end because we're so overly identified with it. It's, it's impossible to let go of until that point in practice. So since I'm really far away from that in my practice, that's all I have to say about that. That is my growth edge. Um, I'm still working on noticing it. And I do admit that over the years, it's become more and more. I practice trying to notice it. And there's plenty of times where I'm like, this is stupid. I can't see it. It's just, I'm going to go back to the body. This I can see. It's like, ah, the body. There I am. That I can look at my clinging and my vanity. And that's a practice worth doing. Looking at consciousness is like trying to look at the back of my head without a mirror. It's just like, it can't can't be done. And I get frustrated and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be enlightened, whatever. I'm going back to the the feeling aggregate because that I can notice. So anyway, uh, be patient with yourself on this aggregate. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Um, And you don't really get it, apparently, until the very end. So if you do let go of it, please let me know. I'd like to see how that experience was, and then you can clarify for me how uh, to go about doing that. I wanted to conclude this evening with another quote from the Mindfulness book by Joseph Goldstein, because he quotes this beautiful passage. It's not actually a Dharma passage, but it's just... I thought it was nice. And I will read it to you as we conclude this evening. And he says, this is a quote from Victor Johnston in a book called Why We Feel, The Science of Human Emotions. So I'll see if I can do this beautiful passage justice. This is, I thought, really interesting. He says this. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter locked in the dance of thermal agitation through shared electrons or the strange attraction of unlike charges quivering molecules not free to roam absorb and emit their characteristic quanta packages of energy within surrounding fog free gas molecules almost oblivious to gravity but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors form swirling, turbulent flows, or march in zones of compression and expansion. This is a massive solar flux, and cosmic radiation from events long past, they crisscross space with their radiant energy, and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures. Within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, The dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization and recognition on this turbulent mix of matter and energy. The active filter of consciousness suddenly illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation converts and amplifies that which is relevant. Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of a rose on a warm summer afternoon. I thought that was nice. Consciousness, the knowing factor. That which knows. Uh, for those who need to leave, feel free. For those who can stay for a couple minutes, we'll do a a short meta. let us just take a couple intentional breaths, breathing in a way that's comfortable in this moment, reminding ourselves that the way we breathe fabricates our experience of the body, fabricates our experience of emotions and thoughts, that intentional breathing, as a way of engaging with reality, co-creating the experience of this present moment. We remind ourselves that our entire journey on the Eightfold Path is a fabrication, co-created experience, this dance with reality, culminating In this aspiration to be free from suffering and to cultivate and enliven a sustainable long-term happiness and well-being a true freedom from discontent stress and suffering and in the spirit of this recollection we wish ourselves well along that journey wishing that the freedom and compassion and well-being that arises on this path not only serves ourself, but serves others. That our healing and well-being can be a refuge for all beings. And our true aspiration is that all beings know the true cause of suffering and its true abandonment. Let's conclude tonight by answering our infamous question. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what might you wish with each breath? All right, my friends, be well. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.WednesdayWakeUp.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.